Good morning. <clears throat> I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to look this morning at verses 5 to 11. It's a very important passage of Scripture because it really reminds us of the end result of discipline, how discipline is to be finished and completed, the goal of discipline that God has and the reason that we carry it out. In this passage, Paul talks about the fact that he had addressed an issue in the church at Corinth and even written to them. Verse 9 says, For to this end also I wrote. He wrote to them about carrying out discipline in the church. And uh, you may say, well, where did he write that? I want you to take your Bible and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Paul says, there is sin in your church that would make the unbelieving world blush. A man is living with his father's wife. And what is your response? Verse 2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul says, your pride is saying, Look how open-minded we are. Look how open we are. We allow this guy to stay in our midst. And Paul said, instead, you should mourn. And you should deal with this problem. And how do you deal with this problem? He says, that person is removed from your midst. Now, Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to them in that letter. They apparently responded to that. They put this individual out of the church. That's discipline. It had the desired re result in that this individual repented, came back into the fellowship. And now Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 5 to 11, and he's saying, here's how you need to complete the process. Here's how you need to respond to this individual who has repented and returned to the fellowship. You see, discipline doesn't end with excommunication. It ends with restoration. It ends when that individual is received back into full fellowship in the local church. It ends with a tangible expression of forgiving love. And that's what we hear Paul saying in these verses. And in this passage, I'd like to, to highlight six aspects of discipline. The pain, the punishment, the purpose, the priority, the participation, and the protection. First of all, the pain. Verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. There is no deeper sorrow than seeing a brother or sister fall into sin. I have spent many sleepless nights over Christian brothers and sisters who have turned away from the Lord 
and are unrepentant in their sin. And that's a normal thing. Look at, look at, turn over a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In verses 23 to 27, Paul is talking about all his external afflictions. He says he's been imprisoned, he's, he's been beaten numerous times, he's been shipwrecked, and he lists all these physical, external things that he's gone through. But then he gets to verse 28 and he says, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. What is he talking about? Look at verse 29. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And literally he says, who is led into sin and I don't burn? That's the word he uses. Burn, meaning to be consumed with emotion, to be consumed with sorrow. That word burn is the same word used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says it's better to marry than to burn. There a person burns with passion. Here he says, because somebody else sins, I'm consumed and burned up with sorrow. And I think one of the reasons why it hurts so much when a brother or sister falls into sin is because I really can't improve that position by perspective. Most things we experience, if we can get God's perspective, it improves things. When somebody dies, I feel great sorrow, but if I can get God's perspective, I know that person is with the Lord. When I go through trials... It's difficult, it's painful, but if I can get God's perspective, then I know that he's developing my faith through those trials. But when a brother or sister sins and is unrepentant, if I get God's perspective, guess what? It hurts more. Because it grieves the heart of God when that happens. God's heart is aching more than my heart is aching. So when I get God's perspective, it just brings more pain on me. And Paul says that pain is shared by us all. It's not just a pain for Christian leaders, although as a Christian leader, I'm privy often to more information that brings me more pain. But Paul says at the end of verse 5, it's for all of you. It affects the whole church. Every time a Christian sins and is unrepentant, it brings pain on us all. And that's part of the cost of being in a Christian community, a Christian church, and being bonded together in the kind of unity that the Spirit of God brings, that when someone falls into sin, it hurts us all. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Sin is never personal. It affects the whole body. And it brings pain. Second is the punishment. Verse 6. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. You say punishment. How does a church inflict punishment on somebody? What is the punishment? What is he talking about? Well, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and we'll look and see what it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 again. Verse 2, at the end of the verse he says, 
so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. That's the punishment. And then he elaborates, verse 3. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. I'm not even there. I'm at a distance, but I know what you need to do. Verse 4. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. Now, how do you deliver somebody to Satan? Well, you simply put them out of the Christian fellowship. You turn them over to the Satan-controlled world system. That's basically delivering them to Satan. Why do you do that? He says, deliver them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. For the destruction of his flesh. Whenever you make a choice in the flesh, it's destructive. So he's saying, this person wants to live in the world. You say, okay, we're going to let you go into the world. And the result is the destruction of your flesh. The end result, the desire is that you would realize the destruction of your flesh, repent, and your spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So there's the punishment. Removal from the Christian community. You say, well, why does he make such a big deal out of this? Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Leaven in Scripture always represents sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Sin is like cancer. And if we don't take it out, it spreads. In the early church, in Acts chapter 5, what did God do to demonstrate this? He struck dead Ananias and Sapphira to say God wants his church to be pure. You say, well, how do we know who to excommunicate and how do we know when to excommunicate somebody? Well, Jesus told us that in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. He says, if your brother sins, you're to go to him privately and confront him. And if he repents, you've won your brother. So there's private rebuke. You go to your brother, you confront him with his sin. If he repents, nobody else needs to know about it. If he doesn't repent, the next step is plural rebuke. Jesus says you take one or two more with you and you go and you confront your brother. Hopefully he'll listen to a collection of people. And also those people can verify that there's a real sin involved here and he is unrepentant in that situation. Third is a plural or a public rebuke. That's where he says you tell it to the church. And you all go and reach out to this individual to challenge this individual to repent. And then the final step is personal removal. Jesus says if they won't repent when they're confronted by the church, then you treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Discipline is never carried out by one person. In fact, in 3 John verses 9 and 10, it talks about a guy named Diotrephes. And he is criticized because he's an individual who was removing people from the church. He was acting as the bouncer of the church, just personally throwing people out. 
That's never to happen. If we remove someone from the church in discipline, it's only going to happen after one goes to him privately, after there's a plural rebuke by two or three, after there's a public challenge to go and reach out to this person. And when they're still unrepentant, Jesus says you have to take that final step of discipline. And here he calls it punishment. They're put out of the local church. They're removed from the blessings and the benefits of the local church. You say, well, how do we relate to this individual then? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 again and verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I knit... I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Jesus says, or or Paul says, when I told you not to associate with immoral people, I wasn't talking about unbelievers. I want you to associate with unbelievers. I want you to reach out to them. But, verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. How do I relate to the person who has been put out of the local church? He says, well, you don't associate with them, and you don't eat with them. Now, in that day, eating was a big deal. If you ate with somebody, it was a real expression of symbolic fellowship and unity. And so he's saying, you don't have them into your house and have a big meal and spend the evening with them and, and dine with them and have that fellowship with them because that's really what they have been removed from in this sense. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul says, Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. How do you hand somebody over to Satan? You put them out of the local church so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. You see, there's a lesson to be learned And that person has to learn that lesson by being put out of the local church. If we treat them like everything's normal, then we are basically approving of their sin. And he says you've got to put them out of the local church so that they can learn that lesson. Essentially what we're doing is we're defining their choice. They have made the choice between the devil and the world or God and his church. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 gives us another principle for dealing with this person. It says, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. And that word keep away means to flinch or to avoid. We're to avoid this. into Again, he's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about a professing believer who is living in unrepentant sin, has been put out of the local church, and he says you are to avoid that individual. Now, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, because this is a key passage on this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 3 and verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. If you accept him and and hang out with him and act like nothing's wrong, then you're really condoning his sin. 
Here he says, you are to not associate him for the purpose that he will be put to shame so that hopefully he will come to the shame of his sin and come back to repentance. And then notice verse 15, because I think this is the key verse. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. How do you treat this individual? Is it wrong to have a meal with somebody like this? I would say, no, it's not wrong. Is it wrong to talk to this person? He says, don't treat him like an enemy, but what are you to be doing? You're to be admonishing them. So whenever you're around this individual, you should be treating them lovingly. After all, who did Jesus love most? Gentiles and tax gatherers. You're to show your love to them, but you're also to admonish them. So you don't have a meal with them and then act like nothing's wrong. In the course of that conversation you have with them, you say to them, you know, I'm really praying that you'll come to repentance. I'm really praying that you'll turn around and repent and come back to the Lord. That's got to be in the context of that conversation. How do we do that? Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, If anyone has fallen into sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Three principles. Number one, you've got to be spiritual, which doesn't mean you're super holy. It means you've taken the log out of your own eye. You've checked yourself before you go to this individual, and you've got the log out of your own eye so you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You're to be gentle because this is delicate spiritual surgery that's taking place. You don't go uh, charge into this person's presence and, and start pointing your finger. You do this gently and lovingly. And then thirdly, you're to do it as a susceptible individual. You're not to be holier than thou. You're to be looking to yourself lest you too be tempted. You're to say, but for the grace of God, I would be right where you are. You're to challenge this individual and admonish this individual. But until he repents, the judgment is that he is removed from the local church. Which brings us thirdly to the purpose in verses 7 and 8. And the purpose of discipline is not rejection, it is restoration. In Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, If your brother repents, you have won your brother. You have gained back your brother. That's our goal. In Galatians 6, 1, it says, Brethren, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And that restore, that word restore means literally to mend a broken bone, to put something back in place where it's supposed to be. You see, the goal of the church is not to throw people out. It's not to embarrass people. It's not to be self-righteous. It's not to play God. The purpose of discipline is to put people back in right relationship with God. And that's the effect it had on this individual in the church at Corinth. He had repented, he had come back, but now he was in the church fellowship and he was kind of feeling like he was a second-class citizen. He was still feeling that shame, still feeling that remorse, still feeling like I'm not really back where I need to be. And so Paul is telling the church, how do we respond to that individual when they repent? 
And he says, if you notice in verse 6, sufficient for such a one is the punishment. The punishment is a God-given thing. He's put out of the church. When he comes back, it's sufficient. You don't add anything else to that. You don't pile on the individual. That's sufficient. What are you to do? Look at verses 7 and 8. So on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. You're to do three things. Number one, you're to forgive him. How do you forgive him? Ephesians 4.32 says, Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. How did God in Christ forgive you? Totally and completely. Jeremiah 31.34 says, God says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. When I hear somebody say, I, I forgive you, but I will never forget, you know what they're saying? I don't forgive you. We are to forgive the way God has forgiven us. In fact, our opportunity to forgive somebody else is really an opportunity to celebrate the fact that God has forgiven us everything. And we have the opportunity to forgive somebody else. We're to forgive them. We're to comfort them. How do you comfort somebody? in this situation? Well, you try to get them to see God's perspective, that they are forgiven, they are cleansed totally, that they are righteous now before God, and you're to treat them that way. And then he says, thirdly, you are to reaffirm your love. Best thing you can do for somebody like this is put your arm around them and say, you know what? It's over. It's past. It's forgiven. Let's move on. Let's learn from this. I love you. You know who the first person Jesus appeared to among the disciples after he rose from the dead? 1 Corinthians 15.5 says he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Why did he appear to Peter? Because Peter had denied him. Peter had failed. I'm sure that Peter was very remorseful, feeling like he was a second-class citizen. And Jesus came to him and reaffirmed his love to him. And that's what he tells us we need to do for those who have stumbled into sin and been restored back, that we are to reaffirm our love to those individuals. Discipline is never complete until you hug your brother and reaffirm your love that's the purpose. And fourthly is the priority. Verse 9. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. I am convinced that the most difficult thing in the Christian life is to go to a brother and sister or sister who has fallen into sin and to confront them with that the way Jesus told us to in Matthew 18, 15. It's the most difficult thing you have to do because it's a very soul-searching thing to say, am I really worthy to be going to this individual? Why should they listen to me? 
And yet we, we in obedience are to go because Jesus said this is the way we win our brother. My daughter Lindsay uh, was a little different than her two brothers. I, I, her two brothers got a lot of spankings. I can only remember, and my memory isn't that good, but I can only remember spanking her two times because all I had to do with Lindsay was say, even mention the concept, and she was in tears. But I honestly can say that, that those two times that I spanked her were very difficult to do. You hear parents say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Well, there's some truth to that. But I do remember that both times I sat down with her and I told her, this is what you did wrong, and this is why I'm going to have to spank you. And I spanked her, and I told her that I loved her, and I remember both times she said, I'm sorry, Daddy, and I love you. And I'll be your girl. You see, it's worth going through the process to get to that end. And that's what we do with brothers and sisters when they sin. We're going to them and saying, I love you enough that I want to confront you with this because I would hope you would do the same thing to me if the roles were reversed. And I want to bring you back to where you need to be in relationship with the Lord in relationship with the church. And here Paul said, calls this a test. He says, this is the test of your obedience. If you will do this thing, then it's the litmus test that you will obey in other areas as well. So let me ask you, how are you doing in this area? When's the last time you took the responsibility to go to an individual that you know that is steering off the path into sin and confront that individual. See, that's the test of obedience. Some people don't like it that we as a church practice discipline. Paul says it's the test of obedience. If you'll obey in this difficult area, then he says you will obey in all the other areas. You know why it's so tough to obey in the area of discipline? Let me give you three reasons. One is privacy. The one principle I find in, in, in the world, the, the one thing that, that uh, the world holds as a moral value and standard is you're not to be a snitch, right? You can do anything, but you don't tell on somebody else. Or you don't really confront anybody else. I mean, the, the, the cliche is, I don't get into your business, you don't get into my business. That's sort of the unwritten rule. And I think that comes over into the church, and we think, well, they, they need to have privacy. It's, it's their business what they're doing, and it's not my business. Well, when a Christian in the church falls into sin, it is my business because it hurts me. And when I, as a Christian, fall into sin, I'm bringing reproach upon, upon Christ. And that impacts all of us because we bear his reproach. You see, the privacy is not that I'm not going to come to you. The privacy is I'm going to come to you privately, and I'm going to confront you lovingly 
about your sin. And sometimes we use the cloak of privacy as a reason and excuse not to get involved in somebody else's life. Secondly is pride. Some people enjoy the fact that another Christian falls into sin. Some of us almost root for it. When I hear people talk about somebody who's fallen into sin, sometimes I get the sense that they're happy about it. Why would I be happy about it? My own pride. It makes me feel better to know that you failed. Listen, if you have to stand on the back of a fallen brother or sister to feel better about yourself, you are far, far from the heart of God. In fact, I would say that you are more guilty of sin than the individual who's sinning. Third thing that hinders us in this area may surprise you, and that's prayer. Some of us say, I... I, I see what's going on in this individual's life. I'm going to pray for them. And so we use prayer as the excuse not to be obedient and go to the brother. And sometimes we're over here praying, God, I pray that they'll see the light. Well, guess what? You've got the light. And you need to take the light and go over and shine it on their life and expose the sin that's going on there. You see, that is the test of obedience. And that's the priority. Fifth is the participation. Verse 10. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Paul is saying, I'm not there, but when a brother under discipline repents and you forgive him and welcome him back, I am participating in that. I am forgiving him as well. Now think about this. It's always easier to forgive somebody if I actually get to hear their confession, see their, their remorse, maybe, maybe sense their sorrow, if, if I'm there and I see the person broken and confessing, it's often easier for me to forgive that individual. If I don't see that part of it, there's a sense of me that says, I don't know, I think maybe he's just sorry he got caught. I think maybe he's, he's not genuine about his repentance because I didn't see it. I love what Paul does here because he's an example to us. He says, if you forgive him, I forgive him. You see, if somebody is disciplined in the church, somebody falls into sin, they repent and come back, it is our obligation to forgive him. It's not optional. Forgiveness is a command for you. You have been forgiven everything. There is no excuse for you not to forgive other people. And what I like here is that discipline is carried out by the whole church and forgiving love is expressed by the whole church. And if you are standing apart from that, then you are being disobedient and hindering the discipline process. 
And then sixthly is the protection in verse 11. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. How does Satan get an advantage? Well, by having the church show harshness to an individual who has repented and come back. And Paul says that person is already sorrowful, and what you're doing is adding excessive sorrow to him in that situation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that he's delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Well, guess what? Satan's never satisfied with just that. He wants his spirit too. And so Paul says here, we're not ignorant of his schemes. What are Satan's schemes? You know, Satan's not that complicated. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, we see his schemes in Genesis chapter 3, and he basically uses the same strategy today as he did then. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, and you'll see what his schemes are. Number one, his scheme is divide and conquer. He comes to Eve when Adam's not there. Gets her when she's alone and divides and conquers. Second, he lies. God says, you'll die. He says, you'll not die. He lies. And thirdly, he uses and exposes the pride of man because he said to her, you will be like God. And in her pride, she responded to that. He divides and conquers, he lies, and he, he uses our pride. And here he's using our pride because it's our pride that refuses to forgive an individual who has fallen into sin and repented. Why? Because we think we're better than them. That's a scheme of Satan, and it's a lie. And if you were ever standing saying, I refuse to forgive somebody who has repented, then you are standing in a position apart from God. And you're not understanding the grace of God. It's kind of like the parable Jesus told when he said the guy was forgiven the huge amount by the king and then he went out and found a guy who owed him a hundred denarii and he grabbed him by the neck and threw him into prison. And Jesus had very harsh words for that individual who had been forgiven everything in terms of his debt but couldn't forgive somebody else. The end result of discipline is that we respond in forgiving love to that individual. Natalie Gilbert was a 13-year-old eighth grader who had won the chance to sing the national anthem at a playoff game between the Portland Trailblazers and the Dallas Mavericks. Even though she had been in bed all day with the flu, she was determined to do her best. When she got there that night, she was obviously nervous and a few lines into the song, which she was singing a cappello, she forgot the words. She just stood there frozen, embarrassed in the spotlight in front of this huge crowd and a national television audience. Had to be the most agonizing moment in Natalie's young life. 
And everybody there was embarrassed for her. After a few seconds of uncomfortable silence, Maurice Cheeks, the Trailblazers head coach, walked over to Natalie's side, put his arm around her, and began to help her with the words. They began to sing together. And pretty soon, Maurice Cheeks started doing this, and the crowd joined in, and they all began to sing the national anthem together. His act of helping Natalie brought the entire crowd into the song, and there was this thunderous cheering when they all reached the words, or the land of the free and the home of the brave. Natalie messed up. But fortunately, there was someone there to help her recover and finish strong. I pray that we will be those very kind of people who when somebody messes up, we come along and put our arm around them and we encourage them to finish strong. Discipline is not complete by putting somebody out. It is complete when that person repents and comes back and we embrace them and welcome them into full fellowship in our body. I'm going to have the praise team come back. We're going to sing praise to the Lord in closing. I don't know how God has spoken to you through this message today. Maybe it's somebody you need to forgive. Maybe it's your own issue that you need to confess before the Lord today and get right with him. But let's stand and close in singing. And as we do, let's be honest and serious before the Lord and how he wants to speak to us today.